This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Merit Sutkovich. Merit is a scientist, a doctor, a researcher, and is both the director of the Sean M. Healy and AMG Center for ALS and Chief of Neurology at Mass General Hospital in Boston. During our conversation, Merritt talks about her journey to becoming a doctor and provides a definition of ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. She also discusses her interest in ALS, describes its symptoms and how it affects those who have it, the influence of genes and environment on its development, how one can live to mitigate one's risk of getting ALS, what we don't yet know about its onset, current research to fight the disease, and reasons for hope. To me, ALS is one of the most terrifying diseases a human can get. Normal psychological and intellectual function as one's body deteriorates, eventually resulting in a total inability to move, to swallow, and eventually to breathe. Merit is optimistic about the future of our ability to understand and combat this horrible illness, and if she's correct, it will be because of the hard work, brilliance, and determination of people like her. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Merit Sukovich. Merit, I have wanted to talk to you for quite a while. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. Likewise. Um, I always like to start with every guest with getting some background context as to the story that brings somebody like yourself to a level of expertise um, and knowledge to have a conversation like this. And I know in doing research for this conversation, I believe you were born and raised in Buffalo, or at least you spent some of your time in Buffalo. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is about 90 miles from from there. I lived in Buffalo in Amherst for a couple of years. Um, were you always interested in science and medicine? What, what do you remember from you know your early years that, if anything, resonates for the trajectory you ended up taking in your your own personal career? Yeah, I, yes, I grew up in Amherst, uh, New York, right near Buffalo, and um, you know my father uh, was a, an immunologist, a scientist, and he always had our house was filled with uh, his grad students, his postdocs, you know. Um, Back then, they would, you know, write papers by hand and his correcting their papers. So I really grew up kind of surrounded by science. And um, I actually wrote in my high school yearbook that I wanted to be a neurologist. So it's it's there in print. <laughs> I don't I don't really remember that, but it's it's there. Um, but I I've, I've loved you know kind of science since since I can remember. Hmm. And was immunology always of interest to you? Was that something that you, you always believed you were destined to follow in your, your family's footsteps? Was, was that something that came naturally for you? What do you, what do you remember about that, that time period in that regard? I remember 
remember always wanting to be a scientist to try to discover something. And, and I, I actually never thought I would be a, a physician. I was really thinking more, again, what I was seeing of being in the lab and trying to discover new things. Um, but then I, you know, in medical school, I just, I fell in love with seeing patients. And then, mm-hmm. and, um, and then and really saw other other types of scientists and clinicians who could do both, who could see patients, study patients, develop treatments for people and and uh, work with the lab based scientists. Um, mm-hmm. But that really didn't come until uh, I was actually in medical school and had some experience seeing people living with different illnesses. Yeah. I know today's conversation is going to focus on one specific human ailment, one that has I think personally just fascinated and horrified and terrified me for uh, probably decades ever since I learned the specifics about it. Do you remember for yourself when you began to learn about ALS specifically? And if you, if you do remember that, you know, that moment for yourself, what, what, what do you remember, you know, feeling, thinking about ALS as you began to learn the specifics of, of what it really is? Yeah, it was during my residency. So that that's you know after medical school when I was training to be a neurologist. It was in the um, mid early nineteen nineties, and all people could talk about was the discovery of the first gene that caused um, you know the genetic form of ALS, a gene called SOD one. So it was discovered by um, one of the faculty at Mass General, Dr. Robert Brown. And at the same time, the first gene that could cause a familiar form of Alzheimer's was discovered. Um, and also the gene for Huntington's disease. It was really kind of the beginning of the genetic revolution where you could find these genes that were causing illnesses. And I remember as a young resident, seeing people with those illnesses and thinking, wow, finally, maybe there's something we can do about it. And this is what I want to do. And and then um, it really wasn't until I was a fellow when I started to train in in ALS and, and in these other neurodegenerative diseases, I met my first patient, you know, with ALS that I took care of, um, Susan, and I just fell head head over heels, you know, for her as yeah. well as for helping this population of of people with this awful illness, but for which, um, you know, I think there's much much more hope now for for effective treatments. Yeah, and uh, you know, for for myself, I I think my first exposure to the disease was reading uh, Tuesdays with Maury, which I think is, you know, kind of popularized the the details of uh, what it's like to watch a man go through uh, ALS as he gets older. And you know, in the, in the past couple of days, as I've been preparing for this, I've been watching additional videos of people who are struggling with this. You know, I, I watched the documentary Gleason when I was living in in San Francisco, and it's. It's difficult to watch that and not be moved by um, just the human tragedy that you're witnessing in front of you of of a, of a person who is psychologically fully intact oftentimes and their body is just deteriorating in front of your eyes. You know, for for you when you met Susan, what what do you remember about that experience of getting to to know her, um, and what did you witness? happened to her her body as as it began to deteriorate yeah i I mean i want to before i describe susan i'll just say i i I feel what you're feeling when you watch those movies or you meet people that it it, it's an illness that hits people in the prime of their lives and they're so strong uh people and and 
um, to lose the ability to move any of your muscles is just horrifying. But I'm, I'm always struck by the inner strength of people, uh, of, of how they can adapt to something um, that seems so difficult and how they think about others. And, and Susan was just like that. She was a teacher and uh, she had a young, young son who was uh, around seven or eight years old at that time. And for her, it was about trying to keep um, as normal life for him and, um, and within her husband and not to make every day about ALS. Yeah. And she had a rapid form of the illness. Um, but um, I re- that's what I remember her. Um, she really taught me about how important it was to maintain quality of life, to be proactive and to try to get ahead of the symptoms. And, but also to try to have not every day defined by the illness. Yeah. And she's, but she she managed it, and uh, and uh, you know she's she um, she's given me she gave me permission to talk about her. Um, you know she she chose to go on the ventilator so she could be here longer and help take care of her son and her family, and you know that that was also a sacrifice, but one that she did with a lot of dignity. But I I think I learned out so much from you know just taking care of one person about the illness and how to be a good physician and how to integrate research in group of care so that we're learning from everybody so that we can, you know, get rid of this illness. Uh, yeah. finally. For, for people who are listening to this, that know essentially nothing about ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, how do you describe that to, you know, an average citizen who comes and asks you that question? What, what exactly are we talking about here? So I'll start by what it stands for is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS. It's also known as motor neuron disease or uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's, uh, it's an illness where um, the motor nerves, which are the nerves that go your muscles and help you move, um, they start to degenerate or they start to die. And when they're not working well, you can't move your muscles. And so that includes your muscles in your hands or your feet or your speaking or breathing or swallowing really everything that we take you know for granted every day and it's a it's a progressive illness where maybe someone will start with a, a little weakness in their foot maybe they're tripping on their foot to eventually not being able to walk at all um and and uh, you know it's usually people's mind uh, is is really intact so their thoughts their memory their cognition is in their feelings are intact it's just that they don't have the ability to move their muscles. Hmm. What are, you just mentioned some, but what are the, generally speaking, what, what tend to be the most common symptoms that might portend a problem here? What, what do people begin to experience that um, may require them to come and seek you know, medical counsel to see if there's really something wrong? Most common symptom is weakness. So maybe, yeah. and it tends to happen in what we call the distal part of the arm or, or like that, the hand, for example, or the foot, and then spread up the leg or the arm. So for example, someone might notice that it's hard to open a bottle cap or they can't maybe cut their, their nails, or they might notice that they, they're tripping maybe when they're running. Those are some of the first symptoms. Now, of course, those symptoms can, can come with many other illnesses. So I don't want to panic anybody because <laughs> often, you know, there's a problem with the back or other reasons for it, but those are some of the first symptoms. Um, it can also start with speech. So sometimes slurring of speech or difficulty with swallowing, but that's less common. Um, but I would say any, anytime anyone had any of those symptoms, you want to see a neurologist anyhow, so that they can figure out why you're having uh, those symptoms. Yeah. 
And if somebody with that description comes in and sees you or a member of your team, what are the battery of tests that are required in order to determine if this might be ALS? The first thing is, I would say, a good, good clinical history and a good examination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we also do a test called electromyography, which is an um, electrodiagnostic test. It's a test where we can look at how your muscles and the nerves to the muscles are working. That test might take an hour and a half, but that will tell us if there's a problem with the muscle, with the nerve to the muscle, like the motor nerve, or maybe the back, or maybe not, not, none of those. And it has nothing to do with your nervous system, but that, that's one of the early tests. We might do some blood work looking for um, you know, genetic changes or vitamin deficiency, hormone problems, all that can mimic ALS. Hmm. Does this disease seem to be something that has always plagued humanity or does it seem like it came online for us at some point in time? I think it's always plagued humanity. It's been described in, in, you know, originally by uh, a French neurologist, Charcot, um, hmm. in, the, in the 1800s, um, but it uh, it's come more online just with awareness, uh, you know, after the ice bucket challenge and other, yeah. it's been here, you know, you know, at least to the 1800s, if not much sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I know ALS is known commonly in the U S and, and perhaps in the rest of the world as Lou Gehrig's disease. What do we know about what happened to him and, and who was that man? Uh, well, Lou Gehrig was one of the most famous baseball players of all time. And, uh, I think the illness bears his name because of his courage and how he shared the news uh, with with the um, the public and how he how he really lived his life. He um, was a supreme athlete and was was noticing changes in his his batting skills and average. Um, and people have written a lot about him to try to document when it actually first started. But he came public and he shared. Uh, what he was going through and um, how he felt he was the luckiest man in the world for the career and he had and for the family and friends that he had. Um, and so really, at least in the United States, it's known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. He, uh, you know, for me, I think one of the reasons why I, I'm just attracted to learning more about this, um, this ailment is because of how, how much it scares me that, you know, getting, um, being afflicted with something like this would, would be, you know, rather close to a worst case scenario, um, for losing so many things that, you know, we all love, I love to do on a, on a daily basis. You know, my understanding in, in doing some research for this conversation is that the understanding at this point is that in roughly 10% of the cases, it is clearly genetic and in 90%, it's unclear or mysterious in some way about why people are developing ALS. In the non-genetic cases where this deterioration just seems to come about in a human life, what do we know, if anything, about what might be causing that, be, that, that onset of muscular deterioration that, that leads to and causes ALS? Really good question. You're, you're absolutely right that in 10% of people, there's a family history, you know, a, a parent or grandparent, aunt, uncle had it, and there's a known gene for the most of the part that causes it. But for the majority of people with ALS, they don't have that single gene and they don't have a family history. Um, we know 
a lot more than we used to know about the risk factors. Um, I'll say that one thing that is becoming apparent is that even in the people with the sporadic form, that yeah. there is a genetic component to it. It's just more complex than one gene, one illness. It's more of a, what we call a polygenetic risk. So there, there might be many genes that you have in your body and your DNA that increase your risk for uh, having ALS. And so they think that about 50% of the risk, the explanation for sporadic disease is actually still genetic, but it's this complex uh, genetics. For the rest, we're still learning. You know, so we know that there's certain things that increase your risk of getting ALS. For example, smoking increases your risk. Um, certain occupations are more associated with uh, ALS, like uh, uh, farming or welding. Um, there's some controversy about whether exercise is a risk factor or not. Um, we have seen it more common in professional uh, football players, both American football and soccer players. Um, but but none of these are big risk factors. So meaning that they maybe double your risk, you know, uh, they don't increase it, you know, a hundred times. So there's clearly other things we don't know about yet in the environment that, that can trigger this. Hmm. And, you know, if, if you are somebody who is young and is attempting as best you can, given the uncertainty and the, the cloud of mystery that surrounds ALS, and it, you know, would like to live a life as best you can to prevent the probability that this may afflict you at some point in your, in your life. What are the, you know, few things that you might recommend considering adopting as habits or lifestyle changes that might increase the likelihood that you never have to deal with this? Sure. I think I would give two different answers, depending if you uh, come from a family with a known gene, right? Where you're in the 10% or if you're if you have nobody in your family with it. I think if you have a known family history, then you want to um, be very thoughtful about things like avoid uh, head trauma, maybe avoid extreme athleticism um, and you know, have a healthy diet, um, sleep well, do all the things that we think actually keep your brain healthy. Um, and I do think eventually we're going to have prevention trials for those people with the gene therapies uh, to try to, you know, prevent the illness from starting in the first place. Hmm. But for the other people where there's no family history, I think the chances, first of all, of you're getting ALS are very small. It's still a rare illness. Um, but I think in general, a healthy lifestyle where you don't smoke, where you sleep well, you eat well, um, and you diminish stress all those things are, you know, they're in your control a little bit and they, they're good for general brain health as well as, you know, preventing ALS. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I know um, this was an idea that I, I heard about a couple of years ago and I wanted to consult with you as to whether or not you think this is total pseudoscience or has been fully debunked, but there, it was an idea posited by um a doctor who does not specialize in ALS specifically, but he's a popular writer, Gabor Mate, who um, I was rewatching this last night to refresh myself on exactly how he frames or how, how he thinks about um, a disease like ALS. And a claim he was making is that uh, it, it commonly occurs or nearly always occurs in people who are, um, you know, often martyrs of their families, people who have a very difficult time asking for help, essentially making the argument that a strong lifestyle component 
is affiliated with or associated with ALS and that it's a rebellion of the body potentially from years of self-abnegation. Now, you know, I, I've read some of your work and seen some of your interviews. I don't know that I've ever heard you speak with um, any real certainty about you know that being the clear reason or anecdote for what is causing ALS. Obviously, you know you're you're a scientist, and you've already mentioned genes a couple times in this conversation. I wanted to just put that to you to get your thoughts on you know the the power and importance of you know, something like a life of martyrdom or a life of you, you, you or just use this word stress in its impact and its um, effect on the probability of somebody getting ALS in general. I just wanted to put that to you to give you an opportunity to, yeah. to speak to that specifically. Thank you. you know, I think it's an important hypothesis, but it is pretty much a hypothesis, meaning yeah. that we, we don't have proof of proof that that's true. And this, the challenge in a rare illness to, to figure out the risk factors is that it's a rare illness and you need large numbers of people to really sort out these risk factors. Um, so I've seen people with ALS who, you know, don't fit the, the definition you just described, you know, yeah. and, and so I, I don't think it's, um, it, it's that probably straightforward. What I believe more is that, that again, there probably are these set of genetic changes in somebody's body that up your risk a lot for getting ALS. And if on top of that, you have, you know, a high stress life or you're, you know, an extreme athlete, you're probably tipping yourself over that way. But that there are a lot of people who don't carry that genetic background. And they, and if they are, uh, you know, the martyr of the family or they're high stress, they're not going to get ALS. It's really a complex uh, interaction between your kind of, your, your genetic makeup and your exposures. And I think we're going to figure this out. There's large uh, international collaborations to um, do, you know, follow many, many people, thousands, you know, people with ALS and thousands of controls to try to understand what these true risk factors are. And, um, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. And I want to get into that and the yeah. research that's going on in, in the future. Before we do, though, I wanted to to focus in on the you know the stress component of of people's lives. It's just an, it interests me, and I, I think it would interest a lot of people to kind of delve into what what that means. Because you know we're both Americans. We both you know I've I know your resume. There's no way you've achieved what you've achieved without working your ass off. Um, okay. You know, w- working extremely hard often comes with a significant amount of stress. Uh, there's almost no way you can do unique and uh, interesting things in in this world without really focusing and, and applying yourself with a lot of a lot of effort. How do you think about stress in it in a healthy manner? Right. I mean, your your credentials are incredible. You you're working at arguably the best university in the world. Uh, have been affiliated with the best uh, university in the world. Um, I know there's a concept called eustress, which is a you know, the inverse of the negative connotation of stress. Eustress being the you know a positive um, form of stress that is sort of taken on voluntarily by an individual rather than having it being imposed chronically from the from the outside. Uh, in your mind, as a doctor, as somebody who works with you know people who are really suffering, um, how do you think about and a, an appropriate level of stress in general for someone to live 
a healthy life to to limit maybe their likelihood of getting something like ALS or just to to live well in general. Yeah. I, I think that this is a very important like modifiable modifiable risk factor for a lot of illnesses is, is high stress because we yeah. know that that changes your your hormone levels uh, in your body and your your immune system. So I'm all for people finding ways to do the things that they love, but also um, do it in a way that they're not stressed. And maybe that term that that you that uh, you, you you stress is really important. So um, you know, I personally, I kind of the way I do it is 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 really around like hobbies and friends. I have to have downtime where you're. Um, where you are kind of relaxed and, um, and, but you know, it's, it, it's easy to say and hard to do, but I do advocate <laughs> for, my, for my patients, you know, that they do try to minimize stress. I don't think it's good for this illness or any illness. Um, and, and so, but it's, it, it's something hard in our culture because everybody's is, is, is a culture of working hard, 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 but you got to take time for yourself. You so that's what, yeah, I give advice to young medical students about that uh, often about, you know, yes, you could spend 24 hours a day studying medicine, but you need to take care of yourself too and your family and, and have your downtime uh, for yeah. your own health. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there have been certainly phases in my life where I've been more of a workaholic than, than others, but I, it, it has been just a kind of pet interest of mine to try to delve into what we know about how, you know, your how chronic stress and what comes with that you know you just said you know, hormone changes and probably a lack of sleep how that can affect you long term um in your career as a doctor and seeing patients uh, you know I, I don't know i just i as a as a kid i just remember going to doctors and being treated um sort of simply as someone who had symptoms and there was very little discussion of what else is going on in your life that might be exacerbating some of these these problems that you're you're seeing do you in you know as a doctor and your patients when you see people who are sick how common do you think you know a lifestyle that is unhealthy and maybe chronically so maybe enduringly so is is really at least partly responsible for the the problems that you're seeing in people i know that's a kind of complicated thing to try to figure out most likely but have we just you know kind of determined or have, have have people in your medical community kind of come to the conclusion that your lifestyle and things like the amount of stress in your life really do play a massive role in you know, what, what could be taking decades to develop, you know, whether that's cancer or ALS or, or other very serious life-threatening diseases that people might be facing. I think the, the best studies are for uh, cognition and for Alzheimer's where there, yeah. there are now um, studies showing that, pe- that, you know, poor sleep, um, lack of exercise are all risk factors for um, earlier cognitive loss. Um, and the flip is that if you if you if you sleep better and you um, and you um, exercise and you eat better, that that can decrease your risk for Alzheimer's or cognitive. It's hard, harder to do that in ALS because of the numbers, because of the rare. Um, but it's not a big leap to think that those same things might help um, in other neurodegenerative diseases like ALS or Parkinson's. Um, but it's a, it's almost like a new science. I mean, they they've been mm-hmm. doing it in cardiology for you know decades. You know, but how do you prevent 
cardiac disease. Um, it's a new field of how do you prevent brain disease. Um, so, but it's coming now. There are studies in both in ALS as well as in these other neurodegenerative. How do you prevent it with good lifestyle changes? Um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's strong enough to say it's important to start <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, you know, I know Matthew Walker published a very popular book in the last few years, Why We Sleep. Um, I have Alzheimer's in my family. I, I watched my grandmother uh, deal with that when I was a. Uh, a boy and um you know as a as a doctor yourself what are the very simple heuristics that you would give to people to you know you just ticked off the it's it's often the basics right it's sleeping enough it's eating enough it's reducing your stress level on a more specific level what what does that look like as advice from your side is it eight hours a night religiously for sleep? Is it, you know, salads every other meal? How do you think about what the specific recommendations for a modern person um, probably should be to be in line with a lifestyle that is both fun, but also is is living as healthily as possible? Obviously, this is related to resources and the ability to control your life, to have a degree of control over your life. But in general, how would you give advice in that in that area to people? Yeah, well, I, I do tend to recommend that they see real experts in it, nutritionists like <laughs> and stuff. But I, I, yeah, for sleep, it's it's usually anywhere between seven and eight hours of sleep, and it's good sleep, good high quality sleep. And now it's it's relatively easy to measure that at home in people with the different smartwatches. Um, it's exercising, you know, um, if not you know every other day or every day, some type of exercise. It's good for your bones. It's good for your heart. Hmm. Um, the, the, the nutrition, it's more about trying to avoid like an inflammatory diet. So, uh, you know, less on the, on the carbohydrates, try to keep a, you know, a, a BMI that's, you know, in the healthy range, you know, again, the 21, 23. Um, these are all very hard things to do. So sometimes, you know, we, we, we have people go to nutritionists or weight loss centers or people that can help them uh, with these. And, you know, no smoking is kind of number one. I mean, I think you know, most, most of the people we see don't, don't actually smoke, but um, if someone smokes with advice, because that, that we know causes a lot of illnesses. Yeah. And you just use this word inflammation. And uh, I, I do want to, I want to move on to the, uh, the research side of this rather quickly in the conversation, but I think um, this is another area that I think just in common conversation with friends who are, you know, roughly my age, who, are living in the cities that I'm living in. I, I know that that is a uh, a topic that just gets brought up at dinner table conversations, which is the role of inflammation in disease. And I believe this is true that that last night when I was um, researching information for uh, for for this conversation, that my understanding is that inflammation often is associated with ALS. That uh, that, that people who have who come in and are diagnosed are often um, experiencing a degree of inflammation. Maybe they have been for many years in their own life. Uh, I guess my first question to you would be, is that, am I correct in making that as assertion? And second, what is the role of inflammation in, you know, the, its potential to cause, um, unwellness or disease in, in people? Um, you just, I think, mentioned grain and, and wheat, or, or you know, I know white bread is often known for uh, causing inflammation. Again, as a kid, that was nowhere on my family's radar. 
that, you know, giving me two bagels as I wake up in the morning and to go to school, like that was a healthy breakfast for me. Um, anyways, there was a lot there, but in general, how do you think about inflammation, um, its role in, um, human disease in general and what people might want to think about doing to change their lifestyle to mitigate that risk? Um, yeah, I think none of this was known when uh, either of us were growing up. So, but <laughs> I, I think for, for brain diseases, so for uh, which is more what I know about, um, we I do think inflammation is an, is part of ALS. For example, it's part of Alzheimer's, it's part of Parkinson's, um, and the more inflammation people have, the faster their illness progresses. So we know that with a lot of data in ALS, hmm. um, and that inflammation is is multi. Factorial. There's lots of different ways. Um, some of it's in the blood that we see markers of inflammation in the blood. Some of it's in the brain that we see inflammation in, in the brain. Hmm. Um, and there are lots of trials now of drugs to try to decrease inflammation to see if that might um, be therapeutic. Hmm. In ALS, though, we don't think it's the primary cause. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, but we do think it's a driver of the progression and the driver of the speed. Um, the best analogy I heard was from um, Dr. Tansey, one of our Alzheimer's um, researchers. He, he's, um, he says that basically inflammation is like the, the wind or the, that um, blows the fire. Yeah. You know, it didn't start it, but it spreads it. Yeah. And what, what is causing in general, right? I, I would imagine there might be a, gen- a genetic component to the effect of, you know, foods on inflaming inflammation and in- in people, but what what generally is triggering a high level of inflammation in in a human individual? Um, well, we know um, that what you eat can impact your um, your markers of inflammation, and that's kind of this this new, really a new science around um, you know again carbohydrates tend to be one of, one of the culprits for increasing um, inflammation in your gut and in your blood, mm-hmm. and also your your micro uh, Biome. So these yeah. are your uh, bacteria in your gut can be impacted by what you eat, and then they can set up the inflammatory pathway. What we didn't know until recently was this real connection between the gut microbiome and brain inflammation. And, and I'd say we still don't know a lot about that, but the, that there, there is a link now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think the disease that probably has the biggest link is multiple sclerosis, where they're actually doing trials now of changing your gut microbiome to try to, to impact what's going on in your brain. Um, but it's a pretty new field, at least in neurology. Yeah. It's to me, it's just utterly fascinating that all the, all the interconnectedness of what you might be eating on a daily basis and its effect on your health in general. Um, you know, as an aside, I, I know a number of years ago, I kind of got interested in, um, the work of Wim Hof and he had a, this is what triggered his interest in cold exposure. What he had, a his wife had been, I think, terribly depressed for many, many years and eventually committed suicide. Uh, they had like four children together and he began investigating what may have been causing that in her, because I, to my knowledge, she hadn't always been as depressed as she was. And he became convinced that it it was highly influenced by the amount of inflammation that she had in her body. And that, um, if she had had daily cold exposure, hypothetically, there's a possibility that it may have reduced some of her most severe symptoms. 
and made it more um, made life more palatable and just enjoyable for her to to live. Um, anyways, uh, if we can, I'd love to maybe move to some of the more specific research that's going on with with ALS and you know potential hope that you have. Uh, and I should preface this by saying, you know, I've been interested in ALS for many, many years. Tuesdays with Maury was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. Um, and then a couple of months ago, I learned that my college roommate's father was uh, battling ALS specifically and and just recently, unfortunately, died. Um, a guy I knew very well when I was in you know my late teenage and early 20 years who would come and visit us at school. Um and it just re-triggered an interest of mine in, you know, connecting with people like you who know so much about the future and any hope that might be available for, you know, his children or for other people that might be dealing with ALS in the future. So let's let's talk about the research if we can. And um, I, I know a little bit about some of the you know uh, sparkles of hope that seem to be perhaps on the horizon. Let me just put that to you simply. What what in your mind right now is, are some hopeful rays of light for areas of research that might actually help in the future? So I am um, the eternal optimist. So I'll start <laughs> but um, I am really hopeful. I think we're at the cusp of finally having a couple drugs that come to market. And um, why I say that is because you know the FDA just reviewed and approved. Um, an oral antioxidant for people with ALS that was in May, and they're reviewing two other drugs now for full market approval. And in my 25 years plus in ALS, never had three drugs under review at the FDA in a year, let alone one. So that that's telling me that we're we're getting some progress and in, in success in the trials. The other, and I can tell you a little bit about all of those, but the other hope is. This used to be an illness where maybe, you know, 50, 100 people were studying it and we'd all get together and we know each other well um, and we'd moan about how we're going to get some funding. It's completely different now. It's yeah. like thousands, tens of thousands of people studying this illness all over the world. There's, you know, there's never enough funding, but there's a lot more than there used to be. And the progress is just like at warp speed. So yeah. so I'm, I'm optimistic that there's going to continue to be breakthroughs. Um, so having said that, I'll just back up and I'll say probably the, one of the most exciting things has happened is, is for the genetic form of the illness, for the form that actually the very first patient I took care of had, there's um, a gene therapy uh, by Biogen called Tefersin that is that it's a gene therapy to knock down the protein that is uh, made badly in people with that genetic form. And that's now under review at the FDA for approval. And we'll know if the FDA approves it in January of 2023 or so. Mm. So that's, and, and they're also, uh, we're working on a prevention trial with that gene uh, therapy to take people who carry the gene and are not symptomatic and, mm. and see if they can prevent the illness from starting or, or delay it. So that is just Fantastic. That took a long time. I thought that was going to happen in the 90s when I when when the first gene was discovered, but we needed the whole technology to be developed of how to turn off genes in people and in the brain and the spinal cord. So we're, we're here for that. Mm. Um, but for the 90% of people who have don't have the genetic form, I still think there's a lot of hope. We, we understand a lot more about the biology. We know there, there are certain proteins that are mismade and in the wrong place. We know that there's inflammation that that triggers. And there's 
there's a lot of trials to try to, um, even combination trials to try to, to slow down this illness. Hmm. Maybe I'll stop there for see. Yeah. yeah. And, and so maybe let's hone in on the genetic component. And, and I know I'd heard you say that in another interview as, as well, or presentation that to you, that was the most promising opportunity essentially at this point or uh, for, for real um, progress. Let's say that goes as well as possible and the results are, you know, stunning. What does that mean for the 10% of people that, uh, you know, are, are developing ALS through a genetic reason? I think it means that one, we have to know them, right? So we have to do gene testing on everybody. So we don't miss, miss anybody who might carry that you know, gene test and people who have ALS, yeah. make sure we don't miss anybody with the genetic form and that we want to start that treatment as early as possible. Um, you know, it's before they lose a lot of function. And that's why I'm kind of excited about the prevention trial, because that's as early as you can do before they even have symptoms. But hmm. even for the people who get symptoms, you want to diagnose quickly and start the treatment quickly. Yeah. Is it akin to, I think it's something like a BRCA2 test for breast cancer, where you can identify you know, women who are almost certain to develop breast cancer and yes. take proactive measures to prevent, you know, life-threatening yes, development exactly. in, a, in a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 um, and those tools are now available. They're actually, you know, low cost now as well. Hmm. It's anytime you have a, you develop a treatment that actually works and effective, then, um, you know, broad testing makes sense. Right. So if you don't have a treatment, you test everybody and, they, and people know they might get an illness that you can't do anything about. That's very anxiety provoking um, and, and complex. But if, if there's a treatment, then it's the flip. You don't want to miss it because you, you, you want to intervene early. Yeah. Am I correct in the 90 percent of cases, which is obviously the vast majority there? Yeah, there really isn't currently a way. To identify, this is one of the things that's so baffling about ALS. So this is somebody for me, is its onset can just seemingly come out of nowhere. Um, you, you said this early in the conversation that very often these are robust uh, human beings. Some of them, you know, athletes. We've already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, is there really no way prior to you know tripping over your your feet while you're running or not being able to hold a toothbrush or something like that? Um, to know that this is coming before there are symptoms. Is that correct? Right. Right now there isn't. I hope that we'll, we'll develop those tools. So there's a big, really a global initiative to follow people at high risk for ALS. So people, gene carriers, follow them to see what, what's the first change and when does it happen? Does it happen 10 years before, five years before symptoms? And by looking in the blood and imaging and other digital markers, with the thought that if we could figure that out in the people who are destined to get ALS, then maybe those same tools can be used in the, in a broader population to see who might develop ALS. Um, and, and again, that's, that's useful if you have something to do about it, but I do think that we'll, we will have something to do about it. I'll give you a good example, like in Alzheimer's, they've been doing those type of studies for, for a long time. They know, you know, that, 20 years before you're going to have cognitive changes that you start to have changes on your MRI mm. and then, and then in your, in your spinal fluid. So, you know, the, again, they're starting those prevention type trials. We, we don't have any of those tools in ALS. 
um, but we want to develop them. I know, you know, my understanding is that you are, you know, the center at Mass General that you're, that you're affiliated with, that you're the medical director for. Um, it's one of the you know, leading institutions that is, or centers that is specifically designed to investigate ALS. Um, yes. what, what is the scope at present of the number of places like where you work? That exists in the world because you, you just mentioned this earlier that the number of researchers that are investigating ALS has seemingly gone ex- exponential, or it certainly has increased by you know seemingly like an, or- an order of magnitude. How many places are there in the world, like where you work, that are actively involved in trying to beat this thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't have the exact number, I but I'd say at least thirty or forty in the world. Um, there, if you look a little broader, like how many places take care of patients in a good way, then you're talking about hundreds. Like even mm-hmm. in the U.S., there's 140 centers that are, you know, taking great care of patients, offering them trials, but they don't all have, you know, also the basic scientists and, and, and all the other depths of research. There, I think it's more the 30 to 40. Um, but, and, and, and we're all working together. That's the other thing. If people go into ALS are doing it because they want to cure this illness, you know, and it's, um, I know it's might be sounds naive, but it's very true that, that it's a community that works together, that it's yeah. not a competitive, you know, I want to get there first. It's like, this is awful. We need to work together so we can speed up you know, yeah. progress. You have, uh, you've used this word to, you've self-applied this word earlier in the conversation that you're an optimist. You're, you're also a scientist and, if you think about five, 10, 15 years from now, what's the most optimistic yet also realistic future that we could be walking into potentially, right? If, if the research progresses in a way that um, is a close to a best case scenario or, or is a best case scenario, and we're in the year 2032 and you know people are still terrified of this thing, what do you think is a realistic but optimistic future that we may be entering in terms of the, what the risks look like for ALS, what kind of progress we may have made for, um, yeah. for dealing with this? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think, I hope we're going to be like what multiple sclerosis is now, where right. we're going to have 15, 20 drugs out there and we'll be tailoring them to different people. Uh, we'll understand more of the biology and we'll, it'll be, what I would call a livable kind of illness, a chronic illness, but, but not fatal in three years, you know, that people will be living longer with it and better. And that we'll be working on repair. How do you return function? Because that is the next step. Um, like if, if we can stop the progression or really slow it down, you know, people still are not going to have full function. So can we, think about how do you actually reconnect the motor nerves? How do you repair and regrow those connections? And, and that's not science fiction anymore. You know, they're working on it for spinal cord injury, for stroke, and we're just starting in ALS, a few labs on it. So that, that would be, I think, a realistic goal is that this, we're going to have a lot of therapy options. People will be living longer and we'll be thinking about how to return function. Now for the genetic form, I really hope in 10 yeah. years that, that that's cured. And prevented. I, I think that is is uh, very feasible, given the genetic revolution we're in the middle of. Hmm. I know you 
may not say this, but you, you, you seem to be close at, to the top of the field in this line of research. Who else do you look to, whether they're you know, other centers or other doctors, and feel slightly in awe of or that you, know, you point to and say, this is someone doing extremely interesting research, extremely promising research in general that um, might you know, be inspiring or just give you, give you hope and bolster the, the optimism that we've talked about? There's so many, but I'll name a few. Obviously, my mentor, Dr. Robert Brown, who's at UMass, mm. and he, of course, found the, uh, with others the SOD1 gene and several other genes and is working on gene therapies. But um, besides being a brilliant scientist, he's also uh, my role model for how to be a physician scientist and care for people. I, I go to him still for every every, every question. Um, and... Um, I'd say there's some really young superstars out there that are scientists like Aaron Gittler at Stanford um, and Kai Spenson at, at Cedars. We have um, the nice thing again about our kind of network of, of clinicians and scientists that work together is that we, um, you know, we have all these amazing scientists that want to see their drugs brought to people and they bring it to us as trialists. But that, those would be a few. Um, I'd say in Europe, uh, Leonard Vandenberg, who um, kind of does what I do in the U.S., is kind of lead a network of sites that work together and do trials, is also a go-to person. Very cool. But there's many, I, many. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah. My understanding is that in the last, I think, only few months that, you know, the Biden administration has, um, you know, done some... Uh, political work or legislative work to be able to to fast track access to um, what, what seemed like high risk treatment options. And I, I wanted to give you a an opportunity to, to speak about that. There was a, a, a man, you know, we, we've talked about some of the names of people that are well known that have been you know dealing with ALS like um, Gleason and obviously Lou Gehrig and Stephen Hawking, who I know we haven't talked about yet. Um, I believe that this man's name was Brian Wallach, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and he and his wife were, they actually met in the Obama administration when he was running for president in 2008 in New Hampshire. Uh, it seems like you may know this story and they've been profiled on, on some you know national TV segments. And he has told his story about, um, you know, their, their goal, their primary goal to me seemingly being, um, allowing patients who are really facing mortality the, the right to be able to access um, non-FDA approved treatments to be able just to try something that might help. W what did just happen with the Biden administration initiative that may be uh, you know, useful knowledge for people who are in circumstances like they are to, to seek out you know, dangerous but um, potentially hopeful options for them they passed a legislation called act for als and, and yes brian wallach and his wife and so many patients that they pulled together uh, advocated for this in a way that was uh just uh, um inspiring um and um it's a bill for a hundred million dollars a year for five years that will support um the fda so that the FDA has some more resources to move faster on uh, decisions around AOS drugs and, um, and contribute to how to do things better that way. And 
then money for just what you said, for access to treatments for people who cannot be in trials. So sometimes people, let's say you've had the illness five years or you're maybe you're on the ventilator to breathe, you're, you're, often you're not eligible for the current clinical trials. This bill will allow um, the physicians to give uh, those same drugs to people um, who are maybe farther in the illness. So I think it's fantastic. Uh, it also you know, asks that we try to learn about the illness in people who are a little uh, farther along when we give them these drugs. So it's also research. Hmm. They, they made the first call for grant applications for, uh, for the, the first set of funds, um, and we're waiting all to hear. So we, we applied for several of the grants. Um, I think it's really important, and I'm grateful to Brian and the IMALS and their advocacy. It, it's very powerful. You, you made me think of one more thing. The, the big change in the last, I'd say, three or four years is really the partnership with patients and their families. I mean, it was always there, and, and um, obviously we do trials together, but their voice is so strong now, and, and um, there isn't a study that we do that doesn't have a person with the illness that's part of it on the steering committee or on the design or, uh, you know, and, and on a, a committee advising us, and it's, it's made what was already a very fulfilling and rewarding career, like triple so, you know, that, that yeah. um, and um and, and I think Brian and, and his group were, were uh, you know, part of, you know, one of many groups that brought the community together, the patients, their families, and the researchers together in a really powerful way. Yeah. I, you know, I think that aligns very much with what you spoke about earlier, which is just the inner resolve in some of these patients to persevere and to try to be proactive yeah. uh, in, in, and helpful um, as they deal with the deterioration of, of their physical body, you know, for, for people that you, know, you just mentioned this, that they're, um, the role that patients have been playing and some of the media campaigns that I have seen just as a normal citizen related to ALS. If there is somebody who is watching this or listening to this, that, um, you know, is recently diagnosed with ALS is, is scared um, and is in, is, is in search of knowledge for, for help, right? We just talked about what the Wallachs did in terms of, um, their advocacy for, on behalf of, of people with ALS, you know, the work of the, the, of, of Gleason. And I think his organization, as I understood it was basically providing, um, kind of ready-made uh, accessories and chairs and, um, kind of, uh, medical equipment for, uh, for individuals who are facing ALS to make their lives slightly more comfortable. What's available for, for people who, you know, may not have a lot of money, um, who are understandably just scared of what they're about to face. What, what, where can they go? Where should they look, uh, to, yeah you know, obtain the services that are, are available to them. I guess we're, we're talking specifically in America at this point, but yeah. where, where would you, where would you yeah. recommend? Yeah, there, there's a, and so the, I would say the first step is, is to the neurologist. So to the ALS center, because they will know all the resources locally. Yeah. Um, so for example, I know everything in New England. They, I, <laughs> I could, uh, and we have an amazing group called Compassionate Care ALS that will help patients with anything they need in the home. Um, 
And the ALS Association and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, they have chapters in almost all states and they help people with ALS. But your, your local ALS clinic, and, and it's, it is important to go to um, an ALS clinic where they have that expertise, will know what's available to you, um, you know, regionally. Uh, I would start there. Um, I think IMALS is a great website and resource for um, advocacy and for also find, helping, like, let's say you don't even know which clinic to go to, they can help you find like a good center near you. Hmm. I, I would love to talk about ALS for a brief minute about um, its evolutionary role in the human species in terms of why it is that something like this would you know, be in existence for people in the first place. And obviously nature, it doesn't take much of delving into um, the reality of nature to realize that nature can be quite a cruel beast. Um, and uh, for seemingly no reason, just afflict species or people with a level of indifference and cruelty that you know, I don't think any modern ethical person would wish upon their worst enemy. If you think about ALS from an evolutionary point of view, how do you think about why it exists in the first place? You know, is it, is it simply that these things exist because they exist? And there's really no, there's no ultimate reason. It's just a fact of nature. How do you think about that in general? It's a good question. I haven't, I haven't been asked that one before. I, <laughs> I think of ALS as an aging illness, to be honest, like that it's, it's accelerated aging. Uh, we know, for example, that once someone hits 60, normally without ALS, their motor neurons, they start to lose motor neurons. And, and for Parkinson's, it's, you know, they start to lose those neurons. And, and so there's something about um, our the ability of our neurons to, to live past a certain, certain use, I guess. And there's, um, you know, people, some people think if we all live to 120, 130, we all get ALS. Um, so that I think it's part of that evolution that, that our bodies have not been met, made yet that our neurons can survive, you know, long wear and tear. And, and why it's accelerated when people get sick, we, that's what we're trying, you know, what, that's what the field's trying to figure out. Um, so that's kind of how I think of it. Um, uh, if, if we can figure out why we age evolutionary, then we'll figure out why uh, people get ALS and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which are all kind of diseases of aging. Yeah, uh, I know um, he probably lives down the street from you, but uh, David Sinclair, I think, is is well known in the public for working on longevity. And uh, there are people like him as well that have become kind of more public figures who um, speak about that that uh, that whole issue as well. Um, yes. you know, this was a question I, I wanted to bring up to you and it's, it's a rather weird one, but, uh, I'm going to set the table with this. I, I bring this up in part because I interviewed the man who is directing the creation of the, I think it is, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's something like the center for psychedelic studies at Harvard who worked at. Mass General as the director of psychiatry at Harvard for 20 years, Jerry Rosenbaum, who you you probably know him. Um, no, I know him well. Yeah, okay. So I met him at his home last summer when I was in Boston, and he was one of the first 15 people on on my podcast. And you know, he I I think is obviously a credentialed and 
a very intelligent guy. Um, one of the big take, I've mentioned this many times on these episodes, but one of the things I remember from my conversation with him is that you know, he he's generally dealing with mental illnesses um, and that a common thread among all mental illnesses in general is something he called rumination. And that it it seemed to him like some of the preliminary trials for people who were going through, for example, psilocybin trials with chronic depression is it seemed to lessen or decrease or even eliminate that propensity for rumination. And it's an interesting time right now, I think in general, because of the Michael Pollan's book and the documentary that just came out called How to Change Your Mind, which is all about um, the history and the the hope for psychedelics. And I've met people personally who have had chronic ailments like alcoholism, essentially eliminated in a couple of um, guided sessions with professionals. I've heard anecdotes of individuals that have had all sorts of seemingly crazy uh chronic human problems like uh, severe stuttering seemingly eliminated from um, a few of these trials. And very likely there is nothing there, but as somebody who is an amateur pretending to be a journalist, I think this is kind of something I like to do is just ask weird questions. Do, do you regard uh, you know, the, the, the work that Jerry is about to embark on work that's beginning to be taken slightly more seriously for treating again, very serious human problems that there might be something, an alternative form of medicine that traditionally has not been incorporated into the Western canon that could be there that might lessen the symptoms of ALS or decrease the, the rapidity of the muscular deterioration. I just wanted to put that to you because I, I know it's a, it's an odd thing to ask in general, but how do you think about that in general, if you have it all? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, la- I'm smiling because uh, a couple months ago, one uh, person that I was seeing asked me if it was okay for her, her to take a guided trip. And I was like, guided trip? What do you mean a guided trip? <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, <laughs> but, um, it's become a more of a question that people are asking. So I, I, I think, first of all, I think we should explore it. Um, yeah. And I do think that his work in that center is doing really rigorous research so that they can understand um, what the, the drugs do, the dosing, how to, how to see if it's working or not. And I, I do think that it's worth thinking about in ALS. There is, there is a ketamine trial going on actually mm. in ALS, and there's some, starting to be some science on it. I can't think just because something was a banned substance doesn't mean it wasn't good. I mean, we know it's psychoactive, so uh, we know it gets in the brain and, and, and it changes transmitters. So um, but I'd say right now there isn't a lot of that in ALS, but I think there's enough in these other fields that it's, it would be a, a worthy um, uh, you know, a study you know, worth, worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something I'm doing personally, uh, but I would support someone else you know, researching it. And I have it on my to-do list to reach out to Jerry and some of the other people in the center to talk about ALS. So this is a good reminder. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's kind of odd timing, but randomly about a week ago, I met, uh, he's younger than I am, a, a guy that was essentially drinking himself to death and was at 
clearly at the end of his rope where his his family thought that he maybe had two years left before he would he would die and that was when uh this is in new york city when nyu had their preliminary uh psilocybin trials for people with addiction and end of life kind of existential despair and he was able to get in to that program and i i'm randomly met him and he had been featured on 60 minutes with anderson cooper and i didn't know who he was and he's decided to basically dedicate the rest of his life to trying to help other people have access to um this type of care um you know to me this is if you are in a situation where you are at a you are at the end of your rope i think this is what brian and his family were probably facing where they they had nothing to lose uh, and were desperate for trying anything to try to prolong his life with ALS. Um, this is exactly what, ju- what happened in Texas. I just moved to uh, Brooklyn from Austin a couple of months ago. And the second or third person that I had on my podcast was the, he's a Democratic state rep from Brownsville, Texas, who by all accounts looked like uh like a boy scout this is not somebody who was involved in the counterculture but he did know a lot of veterans and uh, many of whom you know he knew the statistics extremely well in terms of how many people were committing suicide uh every year and brought navy seals and green berets in front of the texas legislature and to me in a brilliant political move kind of called the bluff of you know, a, a deeply conservative state on disallowing, uh, you know, alternative options for people to save their life and to become well. And that bill, I think it was Bill 1802 last year, passed with 85% support in one of the reddest states in the country. And so the the first trials, first medical trials are starting, I think this year or next year, undoubtedly, I think will save people's lives. Um, and it, it I, uh, this is some of the background of why I wanted to kind of put that to you because for people who have nothing else, uh, no hope left that, you know, maybe, maybe this could be something that could be of, of use. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I do think that, that it has to be pursued and, uh, and understood. And, and there's lots of great places at NYU, Mets General Hopkins, I think has a center that are, you know, doing rigorous research on this, um, so you can do it safely and, and understand it. I think now Texas, so that, that's really good. It is. I know um, I, I wanted to, to ask you this as well. I know we're getting uh, sort of close to the end of the conversation, but in general, are, are there ever circumstances in which, to your knowledge, people are diagnosed with a clinical case of ALS and somehow have that reversed where they are now essentially ALS-free? Does that ever happen? I know if it does, it must be extremely unusual, but in your knowledge of the disease, has that ever happened? I, I do think it happens. And uh, I'd, I'd say personally, I've seen it twice. Um, and then there is uh, this physician at Duke, uh, Dr. Rick Bedlack, who is actually following people. He's called them reversals, um, where he gets their records and reviews. And, and he's, I think, uh, followed 54 people over a long time. So it's very rare, but it does happen. The big questions are, was it ALS in the first place? Yeah. Um, and 
um, if it was, and why did they get reversed? Um, and um, I, I compare it to the HIV field where they there were some people that were infected with um, the virus but never got ill. They could resist it. And the field studied those people to, to, and they, they recently uh, understood why that happened. And that's now leading to treatments, you know, because there was nature told, told the field how to, how to fight off that virus. And I think nature is telling us how to fight off ALS with these, these natural reversals. Hmm. So Dr. Bedlock is leading uh, that research you know, with, a, with a big team. Uh, but I think it's really important research. Yeah. Very good. Well, I have one, one last question I want to ask you. And before I do, I just want to say you, you alluded to this earlier in the conversation that, you know, people in general, in your experience who are working in this field are involved because they want to help. You know, this is not necessarily a field you get involved in to uh, boost your prestige or make a lot of money, right? It's, it's, um, there's clearly an altruistic aspect to people like you who have dedicated their career to, to helping and, I hope you obviously are correct and that in the future um, we've already made progress, it seems like, but that that could be really accelerating in time. And it's going to be due to the you know hard work of people like yourself and your colleagues. And, and just personally, it's this is why I love doing this kind of work to be able to meet digitally people like you, who I have a lot of respect for. So thank you for you know, the hard work. And I think I speak for a lot of people who might never meet you and, um, in voicing that what, what I would like to close with is, um, is asking you what motivates you to, what has motivated you to get involved in this and what motivates you to keep doing this, right? Like, I think I mentioned this in this conversation that my desire to talk to you in part stemmed just personally from having, somebody I know who just died of this terrible disease. What, what inspired you in the first place to want to give the best years of your life, your intellect, your energy to um, go after this thing and, and work on this in the first place? What, why, why this, and why was this you know, so important to you initially and, and to this day where you're, leading these institutions and working as hard as you are? Well, my, my inspiration started with, with Susan, uh, you know, a mom and, you know, about my age, you know, um, fighting this illness and, and doing it with such dignity. And then they remained inspired by the thousands of people I've, I've taken care of. It, it's, it's not a regular doctor physician relationship or doctor patient relationship. We get to know our patients, our families so well and so intimately. And then even after they pass where we stay with the, with the families, it, it's, it's a really, it's an honor. I mean, it, it, mm. I, I feel like I've met so many amazing people in my life and they inspire me. I have a little folder up here called my smile file, which is uh, letters from, my patients and their families. And then if I have a down day to read it, but then it slowly became also the, my uh, colleagues, it, 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 not just at Mass General, but in the community, it, mm. it feels like a big effort family trying to solve a very complex problem. Um, so I do love everything I do every day. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I, I, I've also, I'll retire when we cure this illness, but I'll do something else <laughs> until then. Very good. 
um merit this is this has been a this has been a real pleasure to be able to to do this and um again i think i speak for many in cheering you on and wishing you the the best of luck in the in the research and the work and um with any luck in due time we will make some serious additional progress with with this but thank you so much for doing this it's a a great pleasure for me Thank you, Dan, for, for doing this and for talking. Um, I look forward to, to watching it and your other uh, podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.